Hello, I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. I'd like to welcome you back to the Hoover Book Club, where we bring Hoover Fellows and friends together to discuss their latest writings. Our guests today are Bruce Caldwell and John Taylor. Bruce Caldwell is a past Hoover Institution Distinguished Visiting Fellow. He is a Duke University economics professor and the founder of that school's Center for the History of Political Economy. John Taylor is the Hoover Institution's George P. Schultz Senior Fellow in Economics, as well as the Mary and Robert Raymond Professor of Economics at Stanford University. Dr. Taylor also chairs the Hoover Working Group on Economic Policy, co-chairs the Hoover Technology Economics and Governance Working Group, and is a director of Stanford's Introductory Economics Center. They're here today to discuss the release of a new book from the Hoover Institution Press, Mont Pelerin 1947, Transcripts of the Founding Meeting of the Mont Pelerin Society. Bruce Caldwell edited the book. John Taylor, who is a past president of the society, wrote its forward. Gentlemen, thanks for taking part in the book club. Great to be here. So I'd like to do things a little differently today since I have you two very distinguished economists with me. Rather than me throwing questions at you constantly, I'd like the two of you to go back and forth, but let me begin the conversation with this question to the two of you. I'd like you, first of all, to reflect a little bit on the significance of the moment, 1947, now 75 years ago, what the world was experiencing in 1947 in terms of disrupted order, in terms of geopolitics, in terms of economics. And then secondly, John and Bruce, what these great minds, these were economists, historians, great thinkers of the time, what they had in mind when they came to this small town not far from Lake Geneva. So Bruce, maybe you could start. Okay. So in terms of the way the world looked, and particularly Western Europe and Central Europe, um, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. Although the war had ended in 1947, uh, 1945, by 1947, uh, things had not changed that much uh, for the better. Uh, If we just count down the various countries, uh, England, uh, was under uh, rationing, would continue to be under rationing until the early 1950s for people who were uh, in favor of free markets. The labor government that had taken over was nationalizing uh, left and right. The high point of nationalization in England uh, hit in 1948. Uh, it started to back off from that from uh, after that, but uh, was certainly not heading in, in, in a direction that Hayek would have thought was a good one. Uh, There was communist activity in France, in Italy. The communist parties there were were on the move. There's strikes everywhere, Uh, civil war in Greece. Uh, You get to Central Europe, Germany, Austria, uh, occupied by the four powers, France, England, uh, uh, the United States, and the Soviet Union. So everything was split into zones. Uh, Price controls remained in effect. there was the prospect of mass starvation uh, among the Germans. Uh, the, the places where their food had been grown, uh, a lot of that was controlled by the Soviet Union. Uh, <laughs> they had the worst winter since 1880, the winter right before uh, this spring meeting, So the, and, and a very bad harvard, harvest the summer before. So the prospects of, of massive starvation, millions of people starving to death, was, was, was there. And uh, under the rationing system, as, as one of the people said at the meeting, uh, the, the rations are not enough for a person to live. Uh, just plain out. Uh, not, you're not getting enough calories to, to maintain life. So it was a, it was a horrible uh, uh, time to be meeting. And they were worried about that, of course. And they were also worried about the fate of uh, liberalism. You, you said, you know, what, what brought them together? 
Uh, Hayek had been someone who had written about uh, the dangers of socialism in in, his famous book, The Road to Serfdom in 1944. Uh, And he kind of uh, piggybacked on that, on his uh, fame from that, from that book uh, to gather together mostly people that he knew, uh, uh, almost all of them in, in one way or another, maybe not personally, but certainly through uh, academic channels, uh, who uh, shared his view that, that Western civilization itself was in fact in danger, but certainly uh, anything about anyone who had a, a viewpoint that, that favored uh, liberal democracy, uh, you know, they were worried about its, its, its future and they wanted to see if they could uh, get together these like-minded people to discuss the future, you know, what's the best way to go forward mm-hmm. and so on. So that was, that was the, that was the impetus behind the, the meeting. Mm-hmm. John. First of all, I think Bruce's summary is terrific. And the way the book is put together gives real life to what he said, the actual people, what people said at the time and who they were. It's just fascinating uh, to read. I was happy to be involved in any way, shape or form. But I think Hayek deserves huge amounts of credit for bringing this all together, for capturing his friends and other people who had the same view. I think one thing that was important was the bringing together of what they called liberals, free market economists, both in the United States and in Europe together. And so there was a synergy which was very constructive, I think, in countering the issues that Bruce refers to, which were very real. And uh, there was a, a huge struggle. Uh, which, which way were we going to be? How were we going to go? And I think this society, you know, it's, which some of the people at that first meeting continued for a long time, like Milton, for, Milton Friedman, for example, mm-hmm. was, was very important. And, and it actually, there's a sense in which we're, we're, we were victorious, but we're again reliving a lot of the issues again as we speak. So I think it's a very timely volume. I'm happy to be involved, and I really thank Bruce for putting it together. It's just an it's amazing document that is there. It's fun to read. Bruce, fun. Bruce, tell us, Bruce, tell us a bit more about uh, Hayek. That's F.A. Hayek, Friedrich Hayek, for those not familiar with economics. Uh, uh, an important uh, economist in history does not get as much attention as his uh, U Chicago colleague, Milton Friedman. Yeah, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about uh, Hayek and also perhaps a little bit about some of the people who he was able to get to come to the meeting, because as, as John suggested, it really was a, a, a wonderful gathering of people from all over the Western Europe, uh, you know, and, and America, Canada, et cetera. But mostly those, that, that was kind of the restriction. I mean, right. there are some places there where people couldn't get to Europe, uh, basically, uh, in, 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 uh, from, from Eastern Europe, for example. I mean, you're, you're not going to be able to attract people from there. But okay, so Hayek was a, uh, he, he was born in Austria, mm-hmm. uh, moved to England in the uh, early 30s to teach at the London School of Economics, right. uh, had worked with Ludwig von Mises, another uh, free market economist in Austria uh, prior to that. Uh, when he was uh, in England, uh, some people who have heard his name might have heard about his debates over uh, basically macroeconomics in the early 1930s with John Maynard Keynes. Uh, Towards the middle of the 30s, he became increasingly worried about uh, enthusiasm for socialism. Remember, it was the Great Depression in the 1930s, so a lot of people 
who uh, were looking at uh, to trying to figure out what the best economic setup uh, should be, uh, said, well, a free market system seems to be collapsing. We don't want to go the route of communism or fascism, so certain ideologies that were in place on the continent. So socialism seemed like the reasonable middle way. This is the, this is the proper way for, for, for us to go. And certainly the British intelligentsia embraced socialism uh, uh, almost to a person. Uh, so in the in the 30s, he started writing articles about you know the limits of, of uh, socialism as a setup, uh, you know, public ownership of the means of production, how inefficient that was, the mm-hmm. the potential for limits on freedom uh, when you put all of the power in in one in one place, <laughs> and this became kind of the theme that that he extended in in the road to serfdom. Um, so it was. With that history uh, that he tried to bring together the people that he did in in 1947. So let me let me just run through some of the names. So he, he, yes. I, I mentioned some of the Austrians. So looking on Mises, but but also Fritz Machlup was another uh, Austrian economist who was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, indeed, the people who would become the Chicago School of Economics were all there. Uh, Frank Knight was there, and all, the other three had been students of his in the 30s. So that's Milton Friedman, who was 34 years old at the time. There, we have pictures in the in the uh, in the uh, volume as well that were taken at the meeting, and it's wonderful there to see Milton is. Friedman as this fresh-faced young man, um, basically. Uh, George Stigler, Aaron Director, all all three of them were there. People mm-hmm. who are affiliated with what what has come to be called ordo-liberalism, so the German variant of liberalism, mm-hmm. uh, Wilhelm Rupke and uh, Walter Eucken uh, mm-hmm. were there. Uh, Maurice Allais, who went on to win a Nobel Prize uh, in economics, uh, was one of the representatives from France. Lionel Robbins, uh, uh, a man named uh, Stanley Dennison, uh, and, and Jukes. Uh, these are some of the representatives from England, also uh, uh, Virginia Wedgwood, uh, who was a uh, the only woman who attended? She was from from England as well. She was an, a writer who e- edited uh, uh, one of the editors of Time and Tide, a, a, a very uh, important weekly of, of the day. She also had done a number of important histories uh, that were that were very well read. Uh, she was one of these people who who wrote history and and people uh, who were regular people. It wasn't just for specialists; it was for 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 everyone. Um, uh, there were people like Karl Popper, a philosopher of science, um, uh, Michael Polanyi, uh, another uh, person who was polymath. He, he worked in lots of different fields. There were a variety of writers. So Henry Hazlitt was a quite famous uh, newspaperman of, of his day. He had reviewed The Road to Serfdom uh, for the New York Times uh, 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 review of books. Um, uh, John Davenport from Forbes was there. Uh, mm-hmm. They were hoping to have Max Eastman uh, from Reader's Digest, but he was unable to make it. So they had another uh, representative from Reader's Digest there. Right. Uh, there were representatives from the from the Scandinavian countries, uh, from Italy. Uh, so it was it was a it was a it was a wonderful uh, grouping. I'll, I'll mention finally there were uh, four people who were affiliated with foundations. Um, the Foundation for Economic Education had just been created in New York in 1946. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, Reed was there, uh, the, the head of that foundation. But in addition, uh, 
someone who would go on to found the Institute for Humane Studies. Uh, Baldy was his, uh, his, his, the name that everyone called him, Baldy Harper, uh, also attended uh, Orville Watts. There was, an, let me say uh, one more person. This is a guy who ran a, uh, a bureau that studies government uh, and offers advice on good governmental practices in Detroit. You would think this is just a no-name person, uh, Lauren Red Miller. He was absolutely essential in everything. He he was the one who brought Hayek together with the person who funded the the uh, the the tickets for the Americans to get over to to Europe. Uh, their their travel expenses were funded by him. Um, he helped set up Fee, and it's uh, basically a mansion that had gone on sale. After the war, a lot of mansions in the New York area went on sale after the war because of various, various interesting reasons. We can go into that uh, right. at some point. But uh, so he helped negotiate that. He he helped bring both Chicago, both Hayek to Chicago in 1950, and Ludwig von Mises to NYU uh, in the 40s to try to get him uh, gave him a position there. So this is a, a person who is always behind the scenes doing stuff, but whose name is, has been lost to time. So it was, it was fascinating uh, uh, doing this research, just you know, coming across all these people who have very, very, every, each one of them has a story. <laughs> Let's put it that way. You know, you know, John, I was very interested in reading the book and just studying how the conversations went in this regard. You and I work at a think tank that at the end of the day is very hierarchical. Um, Condoleezza Rice runs a meeting and it's a director of the Hoover Institution. For years, Hoover is graced by the presence of the late, great George Schultz, who was an economist, people tend to forget. So Secretary Schultz would oftentimes run and dominate a meeting as well. As you read this book, were you curious as to how all these great minds gathered and how they interacted with each other? Because there's always a question of peers and sort of who's the alpha individual within the group of the peers. Well, very much so. In fact, uh, just to build on what Bruce said, if you look at the photos, right. you see they're just interacting. It's There's no hierarchy. It's, you right. know, I put it together, so he may have been the leader in some sense. But it's just a joy to see these interact. I wish we could see movies, but uh, but, the, but the photos are, are really good. And I think that's the key to... Uh, to modern uh, discussions, to allow the free flow of information. And that's my sense of what leaders are trying to do at think tanks. And uh, there may be hierarchical where everything's hierarchical these days, but I think the more that you can just encourage this kind of discussion now, it's free flowing. And, and I think it's important. I, I'd say, actually one thing, I don't know, you probably can't, if you can't see the video, you can't see on these license plates on my left shoulder, those are Milton Friedman's license plates. MV equals PY. I see it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's it's a California plate. The, uh, the highway patrol would take down the equal sign or two pieces of tape, and the next day Milton would put it back up. MV equals PY. But it's it's very much. This is a, a society that's been around seventy five years. It's just incredible because of the because of this free flow and let's do it. We need to do it. There are problems to to address. There are all, and there are problems right now. I think the funding is actually important. Uh, Bruce referred to that. I, I wrote down something in the book. Uh, Friedman said, Milton Friedman, why limit our numbers? Let's use whatever money we can get to get together. And I think that was the philosophy. We, 
we had a good discussion. It didn't matter that much where it was, how we got there, as long as we got there and had the discussion. So I, I think that's the key. You, you encourage free flow. The hierarchy is not important. Uh, of course, uh, people like Hayek and for that matter, Condi Rice, who runs Hoover Institution, have huge things to add, but it's not, not just because they're the leaders. Uh, gentlemen, explain to me what happens in 1947, that meeting, and how that affects everyday life here in America and around the free world. So um, there were 10 substantive uh, topics that mm -hmm. were dealt with in sessions. Some of these topics spread over two sessions. Some uh, only were for one. And um, the first week, the first five sessions were ones that Hayek had uh, chosen. And his very first session was free enterprise or competitive order. And this was devoted to an economic question broadly conceived. Uh, these are liberal, in the classical liberal sense, economists. To what extent do we just want to have what might be called laissez-faire mm -hmm. versus other ways that we would want government to intervene and what on what principles could we establish mm -hmm. to say when we might have certain types of intervention? Mm -hmm. um, so that was that was kind of the the the, the point of that first meeting, and uh, there was a move. Most of the people, except for Ludwig von Mises and some of the foundation people, would have been on the side of competitive order. Uh, now this didn't mean that they were you know rabid interventionists by any means. Uh, but they they wanted to have uh, you know certain types of problems that have been associated with a free market economy addressed. Mm -hmm. So some of the topics that were that were uh, indicated in, for example, Aaron Director's talk there was uh, you know is monopoly a problem? If, if to what extent is it a problem? If it is a problem, how do we deal with it? Hayek in his talk talked a lot about patents, copyrights, things like that we today call intellectual property. And they weren't necessarily proposing precise solutions as much as saying, here are some problems that have been identified. They may be real problems. They may not be real problems. That's one, one question that we want to take up. Uh, and secondly, if they are a problem, what, are the, what sorts of policy responses might we have that would be consistent with liberal principles? Mm -hmm. So um, uh, some of the others that, that were discussed by director were uh, the question of associations. So here he was talking both about corporations, right. associations of people in terms of corporations, as well as uh, as labor unions. <coughs> Another topic was monetary stability. Remember, although he'd just been through the war, the Great Depression had preceded it. So this was a live uh, topic, to be sure, as it always is. But it was particularly a, a live one at, at that particular point in time. And then one that resonates today, I'm, I'm sure, in terms of lots of public policy uh, discussions about uh, inequality, to what extent is it a problem? Uh, how do we deal with it in a way that would be, uh, again, consistent with liberal principles? And one of the things that Hayek said in his introductory remarks was, we, we're not here to agree with each other. We're here to, to debate these ideas. And, and if we have lots of different opinions, that's great because maybe it will help us get to, uh, get to the truth uh, better. Uh, so that was just the first that was just the first session. I'll I'll go through and, and, and mention what the other the titles of the other sessions, and then maybe uh, maybe just comment on the very final session is 
its relevance for today. So his his other four were um, history and public education, mm-hmm. uh, something that is very uh, alive today in the academy with the 1619 project, for example. You know, how do we interpret the history of a particular uh, uh, country? Uh, you know. What role uh, do various institutions play in the development of a country? Uh, that the different interpretations that one can give to to history has an effect on how you how you feel about your country, or how you feel about how things work. Um, a, 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 the third one was the problem of Germany, which was a massive problem because, as I said, it was based with it was basically a command and control economy that was going nowhere, and if Germany didn't uh, revive. Uh, the rest of Europe wasn't going to revive, so that was a that was an immediate problem that they were facing. Uh, the fourth uh, set of issues was about federation. Uh, this is something that had been discussed extensively before World War II, and in at the end of the war, uh, people were discussing it again. A lot of times, what they were worried about, the particular liberals, was that countries would uh, retreat behind trade barriers, protectionist barriers. So they wanted to think of ways that, that would uh, enable trade to be able to, to trade flows to, in, in terms of people, in terms of uh, goods, services, et cetera, uh, would be able to be maintained. And finally, the, the final one, which was on Good Friday and led by uh, uh, Frank Knight, who was an, basically an atheist, was uh, liberalism and Christianity, uh, trying to uh, discuss what their relationship was so that in Europe in particular, uh, there had historically been uh, this opposition between uh, liberal thinkers and Christian thinkers, particularly the Catholic Church. Uh, right. And so the the way that Knight would pose the problem is well, you know, liberals find truth to be the most important thing, whereas uh, faith is the important thing for for believing or practicing Catholics. So uh, if if you come to a disagreement, there's there's really not any way to resolve the the problem. Hayek took a different view. He said it was this was kind of an accidental uh, uh, a problem in terms of the antagonisms between these two groups through history. It was not a necessary thing. And Oiken, uh, just to give you the kind of the, the full display, mm-hmm. uh, said, "Look, I Oiken was one of he was the only person who had spent the war in Germany." He had been interviewed by the Gestapo. Some of his friends had been murdered by the Gestapo. Others had been tortured. He he was he was detained, but not, didn't uh, didn't experience that. But it was pretty dicey, particularly at the end of the war. And he said, "Look, as a practicing Christian, I can tell you, uh, the only place that Christianity can survive is a, under a liberal regime. If you're under a totalitarian regime." Uh, that's what's most important to them. And if, if your faith goes against it, uh, it's curtains for you. So he, uh, there was some dramatic exchanges between some of these people. In the, in the second week, um, uh, most of the topics had to do with economics. So there was agricultural uh, problems, problems with agriculture, wage policy, what we would today call macro. There was another one on, on, uh, on led by Milton Friedman on, uh, income inequality and uh, uh, redistribution, and he it, it, he didn't call it a negative income tax, but that was the proposal that he put forward to the to the group, and there was lively discussion about that. And the final the final session was was about uh, was about uh, the present political crisis, and it was all about the Soviet Union. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
the same topic that is everywhere in the news today, uh, at the same time that they were meeting, the, the committee of, 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 of foreign uh, ministers were meeting, uh, of, the, of, the, of the four occupying uh, nations, were meeting in Moscow. And they had met like three or four times over the past three years and gotten nowhere. Right. And, and they, you know, the people at this conference were saying, look, the Russians are just dragging their feet because it's just <laughs> everyone's going to get sick of this and we're going to leave and they're just going to take over. And that's what they're hoping for. So this is why they're dragging their feet. And there were discussions back and forth about whether it made sense to um, to try to negotiate, continue to negotiate. And, and Frank Knight, uh, who was all about negotiate about discussion, the importance of discussion, and uh, uh, Wedgwood, the uh, the journalist, said, "Look, you know, you have to assume that people are human beings who who have a moral sense when you go into these things." And Lionel Robbins immediately shot back and he said, "Look, when you're dealing with the with the Russians, it's it's better to assume that they're not human." It was in response to her saying that you know you have to assume that people are. Are uh, are reasonable uh, that they're they're willing to have these discussions. So I mean, there there was real passion, obviously, in the room of, about the uh, the present situation uh, in that last session. Um, that uh, in terms of of learning from today, I mean, any one of those sessions, I think we could interpret in terms of things that are going on in the news today. I will I will say one thing: the the proposals that were being made by Oiken and Rupke, the two ordo liberals, in 1947 were exactly what was uh, taken up in 1948. Uh, that is to say, uh, a currency reform and a uh, 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 getting rid of the, the price controls, extensive price controls that uh, initiated what's being called the German miracle. Uh, it really got Germany back on, on its feet very, very quickly. Uh, and it was something that they had been that they were calling for, and and uh, and was was it was carried out in in, in 1948 by Ludwig Gerhard, who was who was knowledgeable of their of their ideas. So, John, John, I'm curious. You were president. You've been uh, past president of the Mont Pelerin Society. I'm curious. What was the theme of the meeting uh, in your in your time as president? What did you discuss? Actually, I'll come back to that a little bit uh, if you like. In some sense, it's yes. the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, how are we going to promote uh, freedom? And well, that, that's what I'm curious. That's what I'm curious about, John. What over the past seventy-five years have been evergreen topics for the society versus what you know pops that, up in the news? No, that's still that's still a great topic. Let me just let me just say when I hear Bruce talk about the the book, and I'm thinking about it's it sounds so fluid. It's hard to do. He went through the archives at the Hoover Institution, just tremendous amount of volume of stuff and organized. There it is. Yeah, there's a, one of the photos organized mm-hmm. it by topic, which he just went through. It's, it's really amazing. And I, it's, a, it's a pleasure to read. So if you want to find anything out about the society or about where we're going, where we went, how we got here, that, pick it up. But one mm-hmm. thing, just if I could just say something about the, Please. the, the Aaron director. He's, he sounds like he's doing Econ 1. <laughs> it's very basics. It, it's kind of refreshing to read. I think I was going to sign, sign to my, some of my students. The other thing is that, to just comment on what Bruce said, this liberalism and Christianity is, is an important thing. In fact, I think even today we're thinking about getting 
more economics into our political and military discussions, it's yes. it's very hard. People don't want to hear the economics. They want to, who's on top, who's down, how do we get there? But I think this is another advantage of the society is we're, we're bringing these ideas in. They're largely economics, in my view, but bringing them in. So anyway, Bill, we're still working on that. It's 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 a bit, bit of a struggle now, I think, what we're seeing in Ukraine, unfortunately, and uh, the debate that's happening, it's uh, the attitude. So we could come back to that, but I think it's it's an important thing of, of where the society can go in the future and how it can continue to have the influence that it had in the past. Yes. Could, could I just make a, a comment, Bill, um, uh, that that also uh, follows on on both your question and, and John's response? Mm-hmm. So, how I came to to do this book is as as you mentioned at the outset, I was a visiting fellow in 2019-2020, and I was working on a biography of Hayek that uh, I'm still uh, continuing to work on, although the the first half of it will be coming out also this year. And I had gotten to the, the 1947 point in my biography, and so I was working on and went in and to the Hoover archives and discovered these, these transcripts, which constitute the book. Um, and I, I was fascinated by them. But also in January of 2020, John organized the uh, Mont Pelerin Society meeting at Stanford. Right. So I was able to give a talk based on the research that I had done for that chapter. And, and, and a lot of that research also then went into the introduction to the, to the book. Um, but it was then that I decided I wanted to do the book because I, it, it just, it struck me just as I was doing the research mm. that 2022 would be the 75th anniversary of the society so that it would be a fitting, uh, a fitting present. So everything just kind of uh, came together in a, in a very nice way. But I, I wanted, I wanted to say that, it, you know, John's hosting that meeting was instrumental in, in getting uh, me to think about doing the book, and I, I appreciate that. And he, he wrote the forward to it, and I really appreciate, I really appreciate that. But part of the book is also to celebrate the Hoover Institution collection. It is absolutely marvelous. And for the people who are watching this video, I mean, uh, I'm the nerdy guy who works in the archives. I love my life. I, I mean, the stuff that I do, you know, I would pay other people <laughs> uh, to let me do it. And and the Hoover collection. It's it's not just Hayek's papers. They've got the Mont Pelerin Society papers. Got Friedman's papers, Karl Popper's papers, Machlup's papers, Hobbler's papers. These are all people who are are uh, you know, lions of the of the classical liberal movement. And uh, you know, happiest days of my life I, outside of my marriage are, are days that I spend uh, sitting in the archives, just reading the stuff and feeling feeling it in your with your fingers, you know, picking up the letters that they're writing. It's it's great stuff. Great stuff. I think Bruce, what you've been able to do in this volume is to capture some of that, so people don't have to go. We hope they go, but they don't have to go. They can in one book they can open. I have to hold up another book. You mentioned Milton and George. Freedom. <laughs> I'm sandwiched between uh, between George Schultz and Milton and at the last meeting we had, as uh, Bruce indicated, it was a session with George and me. It was called Choose Economic Freedom, which is a replay of what the society is all about. But uh, we could not have anything without Milton, so he's there too. 
I would encourage our viewers, by the way, to go on the Hoover website. There's actually a transcript of uh, John Taylor's conversation with George Shultz, in which the two of you talk about a lot of American economic policy over the past 60 or so years. And it's, uh, I find that to be a very fascinating read, John. Uh, John, you mentioned in passing, you mentioned Econ 1. Our viewers should know that you teach Econ 1 at Stanford. I'm going to embarrass you now by uh, telling our viewers that you're something of an institution on the campus, dare I say a legend. Uh, John will deny this, but the man has had T-shirts uh, printed in his honor by students. That is high praise by kids, I think. Uh, but John, I'm curious, and Bruce, I'd like you to weigh on this too, um, under the subject of kids today. Uh, you're both uh, working at prominent American universities, and you have bright young minds coming to your classes to learn about economics. I'm curious when they come into your class, what preset notions they have. Um, and I'm curious in this regard, we live in a time right now when it's been pretty good if you're a Keynesian. 2021 was pretty good for the Keynesian side of the crowd. A lot of money spent by government. You still see this in play uh, today. The president uh, Congress, I think John wants to hand out $300 uh, uh, rebates for gasoline prices here in California. The governor wants to give uh, couples up to $800 for gasoline relief and so forth. But Bruce and John, are your dealings with young minds learning about economics? What preset notions do they have? Maybe, John, you should start. Well, one of the advantages of teaching the beginning students is they're wide open. They're thinking, yeah. they're looking for ideas. And yes, they may have preconceived notions, but they're largely not about how markets work, how the system works, how general equilibrium works. And so I think teaching that is illuminating, it's interesting, and uh, it's kind of fun uh, to do. But I think that's that's the thing, the beginning level, just, hey, markets can allocate resources remarkably well. And uh, let's not forget that as, as you know, we've had <clears throat> this, this debate early on with wage and price controls that might be coming back, that's defeatist. And uh, largely, the, the, we, we'd have a, I think monetary policy is a problem right now. And so we can come back and fix that using the basic principles. So I emphasize the basic principles and uh, they still work. Sometimes we forget about them in policy. And I think maybe this is one of those periods where we need to get back to them a little bit more. But I think the students have an open mind coming in. And also in, uh, inflation, John. Uh, so I grew up in Washington, D.C. I'm a child of the 60s and 70s. And I remember my little school kids walked around wearing wind buttons. Uh, for those uh, <laughs> those who are not under the age of 60, uh, who are under the age of 60, won't know what I'm talking about. But when is John Taylor can tell you, because, John, I think you worked uh, on the CEA in the Ford White House. Wind stood, he starches eyebrows, yes. Wind stood for whip inflation now. And so this generation of Americans now is really experiencing inflation in an honest to God, horrible form for the first time in what, John, 40 years? Yeah. Well, it's come back. The whip inflation now is a Joel Ford idea. Yes. A button held that will deal with inflation. But it didn't work, obviously. We really have the monetary policy had to adjust it. But I think this is an interesting analogy because. At that time, Arthur Burns was the chair of the Fed. Right. And he said, yes, there's inflation, but it's not us. Don't look at us. It's something else. So he convinced uh, President Nixon to have wage and price controls. And the United States economy had wage and price controls. And it, it created tremendous distortions. And it didn't deal with the problem uh, at all. And so ultimately, that was abandoned. And we got out of that approach. But that was the 70s. And I think we learn from it. We tend to forget what it was like. I mean, it's a long time ago. There aren't too many people who remember that carefully, but you have to repeat that episode and hope we don't go back to that again. But what worked 
right. was a, was a better monetary and fiscal policy. Really, that's what made the economy better. I think just emphasizing that uh, and the dangers of that kind of intervention. Not not to say there should be some interventions. There are externalities, but that kind was really destructive. Right, and Bruce, I think that's the value in reading these transcripts. Just history can teach us a lot about not just what occurred in the past, but obviously how to deal with the present and the future. Sure. Uh, just on the on the problem of the 1970s, of course, they also had an excess profit tax, something that has been proposed uh, for oil companies today, they, which one of the things that led to further problems with this <laughs> supply of oil. So, I mean, a lot of the policy mistakes of the past uh, are now the the newest uh, ideas that are being proposed. One of the, one of the things I also teach a introductory class, and one of the things that I have uh, always enjoyed doing is to get the students to take the combinations of the price level and the unemployment rate on a Phillips curve type of diagram uh, and just plot them starting in 1967 and going through 1982. And then you can follow them and it, it goes in this big circle and the circle keeps going higher and higher and you get to higher and higher levels of both unemployment and inflation, of stagflation. And then I then you tell a story that makes the graph come alive, which says, yeah, this is, you've heard of stop-go policy? This is stop-go policy, where you, where you start up stimulating and then it goes too far and then you try to slow it down, but it doesn't slow down just like they're seeing right now, it takes a while to get inflation out. And then you start to induce a recession. Nobody likes that yet because at that point you've got still high inflation plus a recession that's obviously being undertaken as a policy move, which is horrible for the people who are, who are in, in office. So they, it's really hard to sustain that. And it, it really did take uh, Volcker coming in and just saying, we're gonna put a stop to it in the early 80s, very painfully, very painfully, not only in the United States, but throughout the, you know, other countries were hurt quite a bit as well from that. So, I mean, it, it, it there's, history never repeats itself, but it sure uh, sometimes does things that make, make you think, well, maybe we can learn something from, from this. Yeah, we'll put it. Yeah, no, I agree. Just one thing, that episode uh, in the 70s and the 80s, it, it, it was it was not just the Fed. You had support from the White House and yep. from the, right. the whole government. And it, it ultimately became an international thing. It ultimately became, this is something we can improve more generally. So now we're drifting back the other way. I think I think we can undo this without the great damage that, that Bruce was referring to. And it's, it is a worry, but it's more global. The economy is more integrated. I mean, think of, think of this medium we're using right now. It's just amazing what's happening. And people are learning, they're following the bad steps and the good steps. So we need to take that into account when we make revisions. And that comes back to this great society. It's a global society. It's right. not just one country, it's across borders. Right, let's continue with the global theme, John. We have colleagues at Hoover who are very fond of uh, using the phrase Cold War II. And they use it with regard to talking about China. Uh, now, if you can compare a Cold War II with China versus a Cold War I with the Soviet Union, there are similarities. There's an ideological difference of opinion. Uh, there's obviously a military competition. But, John, it seems to me that there's a much larger economic component. 
than there was with the Soviets. And you see this when you get into conversations about what to do with China. If China does something errant with regard to Taiwan, would we do economic sanctions? And the pushback immediately is, oh my God, we cannot consider the global ramifications of doing so. So perhaps you could spend a couple of minutes discussing just the economic competition that is going on right now. Well, it's very real. And I think to some extent, the reforms in China, they're a little old at this point, but they were very instrumental in China growing more rapidly. We used to talk about them all the time. Right Now, I think they're drifting away from those and people uh, are thinking about what's, is this the right way to go? Maybe we should do more of that. Mm-hmm. And of course, Russia's brought into the picture as well. But I think here, here's where it's so important to emphasize the economics, because What's the focus is now is really military and political. Mm-hmm. And you got to just, as a, some of my experience, I, w- I worked in the treasury, went to many meetings in the situation room, and I'd raise the economics. And uh, Secretaries Rumsfeld and Powell would, oh, there goes Taylor again, talk about the economics. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was just a, a little bit of word and edgewise, but it was very important. I think it's maybe more important now because you can see the successes and and we don't know as, as much as we should about how these other systems are working. But I'm very much of the view, if you look at the successes in the United States, just look at the, the technology, we, we should be holding back our best technology. But mm-hmm. I think that's that works and just has to be emphasized to, student, to students as well as everybody. You know, I, I really enjoyed my time out at Hoover uh, for the archives, but also to attend the various uh, small conferences, speakers, all these different events that took place there. And what was so instructive to me is, yeah, I'm, I'm trained as an economist like John, so I tend to see things through those glasses. And at Hoover, you've got a number of people who see things through different glasses. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're some great conversations about the costs and benefits of various types of policies in terms of costs and benefits that are different from the ones that economists typically look at. So I found it just to be a fascinating, uh, really rich environment intellectually uh, to be at. I was very happy when I was there. I I could just just interrupt, go back to this first meeting. It was more than economics. Right. Right. So much so. And and the the leaders, they knew that it was... It had to be integrated with the political philosophy, and and that that was an emphasis that I, I get from your book. But I, but just looking at a little bit at the archives uh, or reading the Road to Serfdom and things like that, you can see. Mm-hmm. Well, no, that's a, that's a great point that John raises, and again, it gets back to the nature of 1947. It's yes, Western Europe is is just in a terrible situation given the devastation of the war, trying to rebuild an economy, trying to figure out if the Soviet Union is going to invade all the way to the Atlantic. Um, you just you've had upheaval back in the United States as well, people coming home from the war and going back to. Uh, going back to college, all sorts of great questions about society moving forward. Guys, do you think 75 years later, do you think the world is more complicated or less complicated than it was in 1947? Bruce, you start. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I could argue both sides of this because on the one hand, um, life may have been simpler back in 1947. You can maybe say no internet. So maybe things were just maybe a little more, I don't know, civilized or dignified. On the other hand, we have a lot of thorny problems here in 2022. Yeah, so I think life is more complicated now, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
you have to be more fine grained in which dimensions do you want to look at it? And, yes. and I have to say as an historian, those are the kind of questions that maybe, maybe after I've finished the second <laughs> volume and I get to, uh, to the end of Hayek's life, I'll be able to reflect better on that. But I, I have to say, I mean, it was, it was the, the, the full dimension of his life moving from the Austro-Hungarian empire uh, that after World War I, it was gone. There, the numbers of changes that took place within a, within a 20 year period in, in Western Europe were, so that, I think the dimension is not complication. It's just the number of things that happened. The Russian revolution, uh, the League of Nations was formed and, and fell apart. Fascism arose in, in, in Italy, in, in Germany, in Spain, in these various ways. The Great Depression hits. I mean, all of these things happen. And then World War II. So two world wars and all of those other changes. Uh, and this is, you know, radio is being invented. Right. <laughs> uh, just there were, there were changes that were, Hayek was flying in a plane uh, in World War I. Uh, it's just all these things were different. Skiing. Mm -hmm. They didn't used to have downhill skiing. They used just had cross-country skiing. So even, you know, the other all sorts of cultural things that were quite different. So it, it was just a, it was a period when people really felt like the world was changing very rapidly and not necessarily for the better. Mm -hmm. John? That, that best I can do. <laughs> so I think that Bruce is, is completely right. It, it's not that this is the only time the world has changed a lot. But I think I'm I think a little more optimistically that this is uh, a way that will be able to integrate in a productive way. Um, we are seeing what's going on in real time, which we've never been able to see in Ukraine. Um, I, I teach my Econ 1 class is online. There's thousands of students who can watch it around the world in China for that matter, and some do. So we're just beginning, but I think in the last 15 years, it's taken off and we don't want to squash that. I wish we could see more and understand more what's going on in Russia. Uh, it seems like, and wish they could see as well, but that seems to be a, a place to begin. But the more we can use this technology and not squash it, I think we're better off. But I, I just, the my experience in how this has changed in maybe just 10 years is just amazing. And uh, the fact that, again, this is a broadcast any, all over the world. And uh, it's, it's amazing. I just, I could go on radio, of course, which is huge and airplanes were huge, but maybe right. this is even bigger. Maybe this is something where what we talk about becomes known and that, that means it's harder because you have to explain it better. I used, to, I like to use skits of markets to explain so the students can actually see a market at work. It's a little artificial, but they can see it and that helps penetrate uh, more abstract ways of thinking about things. I'd be very curious, gentlemen, if we took the 1947 group and put them together with the 2020 uh, group of the Mont Pelerin Society and had the entire gathering talk about income inequality. 
and how they would remedy this and how they would define it as well. Uh, John, this strikes me as one of the differences between 1947, perhaps in 2022. You and I live in California, which is perhaps the most staggering example in America of income inequality, where you and I can go from one section of Northern California where we live and five miles away find people living in just absolute opposite existence. So I'm curious if, as you look, especially back in 1947, how did the conversation back then about income inequality differ from today? And I guess I should say not income inequality, economic inequality. Oh, okay, so um, <laughs> you know, when you talk about the students who come in to a classroom, an economics classroom uh, for the first time, mm-hmm. and you know, we've all heard this wild, widely reported statistic that 50% of college students think socialism is better than capitalism. And uh, you know, it's kind of a scary thing, and, but then you have to realize they don't know what socialism is. They're not talking about uh, public ownership of the means of production. What they're worried about is typically, um, it, it can be social justice issues that have to do with racism in society, but often it has to do with income inequality. And so the conversations that you wanna have then are, are okay, so let's talk about the sources of inequality. First right. of all, try to figure out you know why you might have have uh, inequality of various sorts. Some some of which might be more justifiable than others. Um, uh, you know, if you if you if you've invented something and lots of people want it, then or you're performing a service that lots of people want, then you can understand that people would have an unequal income that way. But it's it's unjustified inequality that they're worried about. So so right. then the question becomes: Well, what are we all agree that this is a problem? Um, to some extent, we might disagree on the extent, but you know, we, we can understand this problem. What, what are the best ways to address it? Mm-hmm. And that's precisely the question that they were asking at, these, at this 1947 meeting. And I think that economists ask in their classrooms, you know, when you're talking about, about differences in income, is the minimum wage a good way to go about addressing that? And then you explore you know, what are the implications of that particular approach versus, for example, a universal basic income or a progressive income tax with, with a negative income tax? Or what are the various ways that you might try to address it? And certainly the, the, it was very much of a concern in 1947. I mean, this, this was something that was brought up at a, a number of different sessions, not just the one that, that was dedicated to it that Friedman led. Um, but it was widely recognized that, you know, if you're, if you're an advocate of free markets, people who are critics are going to say, yeah, yeah, that's good for you because you're rich. Uh, you know, what about people who are poor? What, what, what sorts of policies do you have for them? And, and that's what they meant when they said, well, we can't just say free enterprise, just let things you know, run. We've got to come up with policies that, that a person can feel comfortable defending as, as an appropriate policy that tries to get rid of a problem that we all agree exists. But based on liberal principles. So, I mean, I think that this is an ongoing kind of discussion. But what's also interesting is that some of the ideas that they were coming up with then uh, resonate now, I think, in terms of policy solutions. So that's my take on it. Yeah, I, I think at that point, it was sort of income per capita getting it, you know, getting it up and which is the best way to do it. And I think we got some progress on that. And then as we did, the income inequality has become 
more of a problem, more of a observable problem. But I think, you know, minimum wage is, is not the way to get at that. I think education, maybe because I'm education, is a way to get at it. And um, the uh, there's a lot of reforms out there, a lot of possibilities. Uh, many people in the society, Mount Bowen Society, were interested in trying to have better education for people. And a lot of that is, is related to school choice. Um, the um, I think the on going back to the online. Im imagine if you wherever you are in the world, you can get Bruce's history and what he has to say. It's just tremendous uh, improvement. And th there's a question of choice. How do you decide? How do you know about Bruce? And uh, that that becomes a marketing issue. But if just you just pick up the newspaper today, you see so many advances and so many ideas that. I think can get around this. It can give give people the opportunity right. uh, to advance, and uh, and then you can you can focus on the people that are a problem. It, it's it's actually quite obvious here where I sit in California. Mm -hmm. you, go, you see tense cities. You see San Francisco and difficult situation. Right. Uh, this main road, El Camino, is uh, it's called the King's Highway, and it's it's just lots of uh, trailer park and things like right. that. Yeah. It's interesting. So the Mount Pelerin Society meets in Oslo in the first week of October this year. Uh, the theme of that meeting is liberal institutions and international order, uh, renewing the infrastructure of liberty. Uh, I'm curious as to your thoughts on what you think topics should be for this, for this, under this rather large topic. Let me throw a few at you that I'd like you to expand or, or shoot down my ideas. I think there should be a conversation perhaps about autocracy given what we're seeing Ukraine and seeing what China um, is uh, thinking on its uh, side. Uh, perhaps a conversation about alliances. Um, you know, the invasion of Ukraine has had this rejuvenating effect on NATO. So perhaps it's time to examine NATO. I think Zelensky in his speech to Congress, John and Bruce uh, talked about uh, the creation of an international order of democracies uh, to respond immediately to crises such as his. Uh, John and Bruce, perhaps a, a conversation about the global economy, how just countries are now intertwined as in ways which they have not been in the past. Uh, building on what you said earlier, John, maybe a conversation about wokeism, uh, something which I'm sensitive to here in California. Also, given that we're talking on Zoom, the change in work. Uh, you see companies like Google and Apple struggling with their workforces right now over one simple issue. Will you please come back to the office and workers pushing back <laughs> and saying, no, I might do it two days a week, but I really prefer to work out of home if I can. So what am I missing here, fellas? What other topics do you think should be discussed? John, I'll, 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 I'll give it to you since you're, you're closer to the leadership at, at MBS. No, not really. I think all, all of those topics are in principle there, but I think I think the most important thing is to we are in a situation which is reminiscent of 75 years ago, a struggle of which broke the take. Mm -hmm. It's different now, uh, but I think coming back to the basic economic freedom, they didn't mention that specifically. I think that's right. an important thing to emphasize. And there's different ways to go about it and how do, how do markets work, examples and things like that. That's what the, that would bring together the, the people who were there in 47 and current people. But I, I think that's important. I think the, the other things you mentioned, Bruce, are, are more uh, political, the alliances, NATO, um, and things like that. that. That's important because that's how you, that's how you deliver right. the, uh, the, the economic freedom or the freedom more generally. But I think that should be the focus. Uh, and, and I think in, in some sense, it's, 
I don't want to say we should just replay 47. Uh, we should read Bruce's book before we do that for sure. But it's, it's an important um, thing to think about. And I think some of your ideas are good. Bruce, would you take the same topics in 1947 and repeat them 75 years later, or would you add or subtract? Yeah, so um, I, I can't really add anything to, to what John has said. Uh, I think he's, he's, he's put it very well. I, I do know that there will be one session at the Oslo meeting, which will be on Mont Peller in 1947, where I'm actually, actually, I think I'm either being interviewed or I'm giving a talk about it. So whatever you come up with, Bill, I hope it doesn't knock my session out. I mean, I don't, I hope you're not too persuasive. Uh, if you, if you, if you write in well, I, uh, to the leadership and try to, try I, to I think I'm probably too it. political for the leadership, I think on some of these <laughs> topics, but okay. oh, so you will talk about 1947. That's good. I actually think that a, uh, I, I think it's okay to say this, that a, a deal has been struck where they're, they always give you a kind of a goodies bag when you arrive at the, at the meetings. And I think they're going to give uh, copies of the book out in the goodies bag. So that will be a nice thing. So people, so go to the Mont Pelerin Society meeting and you can get a copy of the book that way, or you can get it on Amazon, I'm sure, or through Hoover. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Okay, John, any further thoughts? No, I think this is, a, by the way, you should come, Bill, and interview people. You're great, yeah. you're great at this, yeah. I'd like to do that. It's a final thought, gentlemen. We just have a couple minutes left here. Um, very simply, I'd like to know what's on your mind these days vis-a-vis -vis your teaching and what you're trying to impart. Um, I don't know, John, if you go through this annually when you reflect before you begin a new school year, but what, what do you think is kind of your mission this year in terms of being an educator? Actually, the, the truth is the mission of teaching basic economics doesn't really change. You have right. why markets work, uh, where, they're, where they don't work, how do you explain it? I think one difference, which I alluded to before, is international, which, mm -hmm. is, which is we're coming together more than we have in the past. Right. And I think emphasizing that also using the, this technology and how do we use it, that bringing in the artificial intelligence issues and the economics together is fascinating. And so I, I plan to do more of that in the future. I think it will happen more, but that's that's an important aspect of what's different about the world now compared to even 10 years ago. Okay, and Bruce, I'm gonna give you the last word and give you a couple of minutes to ask this, ask this question, answer this question. If you had a few minutes with Frederick Hayek to explain what is going on in the world in 2022, and I know this is a very complicated question for just a couple of minutes, but how would you explain today's world to, to Mr. Hayek? Okay, well, before I answer that, let me just say that I'm, I'm teaching a new course for the first time in ah. many years. It's called Liberalism and its Critics. And because liberalism is being criticized from the left, as it always has been, but also very right. much from the right, which it, historically it has been as well. Right. And uh, it is fascinating to read through the various types of criticism. Some of them have changed. Some are new. A lot of them are, are old. And, uh, and we're just going to have the students... 18 students, a sophomore level class, so they will have had one econ one, but but not much more, and uh, and just have them discuss these these various takes and see what they come up with. If I had a conversation with Friedrich Hayek about today, is that what mm -hmm. was that what you asked? Yeah, me? if you, if, yeah, Boy, if, if, what, if, what if, a final if, question. That's that's a killer. Well, I mean, uh, I well, let's capacity obligatory. I've been explaining what a what an iPhone is and what the internet is and that sort of thing. But <laughs> right. just in terms of economic conditions, what would you impart to him? Well, 
Um, I think he would, he was somebody who was always worried most about inflation. Uh, and he was warning that inflation's coming, inflation's coming. And then it didn't come for a long time. And then in the 70s, it started to come uh, full, full bore. And that's when he started writing about, uh, about monetary stuff again. So I think he would, he would look at the world. He would say, yeah, Russia was a problem back then, too. You know, I mean, we, 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 we had that problem back then. But the real danger, the real danger in his mind would always be uh, uh, getting the monetary institutions right. And in the 70s, he actually was worried about the monopoly of, mm. of the Fed. <laughs> so, so, you know, he, he would probably have some choice things to say about, uh, about monetary policy or its absence. And John, I'm going to give you the last word with this question. If you uh, attend that great university in Durham, North Carolina, they will tell you that Stanford is the Duke of the West. If you attend the great university in Palo Alto, California, they'll tell you that Duke is the Stanford of the East. So it's your chance, Dr. Taylor, to settle this debate once and for all. We have great institutions in the United States. Uh, and these are two of them you're talking about, but there are many more. Uh, and there's many places people can go and get great educations. Think about the education. And, and uh, that's, that's the important thing, no matter where you are. Yes, that is a great answer, Dr. Taylor. <laughs> so, gentlemen, I'd like to thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedules to take part in the Hoover Book Club. Congratulations on this really fascinating account of history. The book, again, let me hold it up if you can see it on camera. It's not too shiny. It's the Mount Polarin 1947 transcripts of the founding meeting of the Mount Polarin Society. You can purchase it online, including the Hoover Institution's website, which is www.hoover.org. You can follow Bruce Caldwell on Twitter via vis-a-vis -vis the Duke Economics Department, and that uh, Twitter handle is at Duke Econ. Dr. John B. Taylor, brave man that he is, is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Economics1, but note, that's the word one, not the letter one. So it's at Economics, O-N-E, at Economics 1. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Bill Whalen. Thanks for watching today. Thanks very much. I've really enjoyed Thank this. Thank you very much.